Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics here at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I am really excited to, to introduce our listeners to our guest today. Gene Bishop has written a fascinating account of an incredible story. Uh, some of our listeners may, may not have been aware of this at the time, but 20, roughly 25 years ago, uh, the, most, the most horrific act of domestic terrorism occurred in the United States when Timothy McVeigh uh, engineered a bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building, killing 178 innocent people. Uh, Jean Bishop, in her book, Grace from the Rubble, uh, subtitled Two Fathers' Road to Reconciliation After the Oklahoma City Bombing, is the story of Timothy McVeigh's father, uh, Bill McVeigh, and Bud Welch, who is the father of one of the one of the, the uh, Women, women, young women killed in the bombing, Julie Welch, uh, is the story of their how they got together and of the, the friendship that developed and reconciliation that developed between them. Gene, thanks so much for coming on with us. Uh, your book is just is this incredibly compelling story that I am so looking forward to our listeners being able to hear from you about this story. So thanks for coming on with us. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be with you. You know, th- this is is just such a remarkable story. Maybe the best place to start was to tell our listeners a bit, how did you get involved with the McVeigh and the Welch families? Well, um, I had a murder in my own family. Um, my younger sister, Nancy, was killed at the age of 25, along with her husband, Richard, who was 29. And Nancy was three months pregnant with what would have been her first child uh, at the time that, that she was shot to death. And so, and I grew up in Oklahoma City. And so it was in the course of the work that I did in the wake of those, uh, those murders that led me to meet first Bud Welch and then through Bud to meet Bill McVeigh. Bud is a gas station owner in Oklahoma City. Um, and Bill McVeigh is a retired auto parts uh, worker, factory worker who lives outside Buffalo, New York. And it was Bud that, uh, kind of uh, reached out to Bill and said that he'd be hearing from me because I'd heard about this story, this incredible story of compassion and, and mercy and forgiveness. And I so wanted to tell that story because it kind of dovetailed with my own story. I've forgiven the person who murdered my family members and I've reconciled with him. So t- t- tell us a little bit about how Bill McVeigh and Bud Welch ca- came to connect with each other uh, and and how what you know what that meeting was like when they sat down together for the first time yeah so bud uh, his only daughter Julie Welch as you said was murdered in the bombing and at first he was just full of hate and wanted Timothy McVeigh dead and was just consumed with grief and rage and, and it was killing him it was it was just killing him inside and so over time he realized that what he needed to do was to to forgive, to lay that burden of hatred down. He tried to reach out to Tim McVeigh himself to, to do that and wasn't able to meet with him. And so instead, Bud reached out uh, to Bill McVeigh uh, to have a meeting with him. And the way he did that, Bud and Bill are both Catholics. 
And Bud uh, is a Catholic in Oklahoma where there are, you know, relatively few compared to Buffalo, New York. And so he's kind of figured if he reached out to any Catholic in Buffalo, they'd be able to set him up with, with Bill McVeigh. <laughs> so, wow. so he reached out to this nun, Sister Rosalind Rosenkowski, which is this amazing uh, woman who is a chaplain at Attica Prison. She runs a reentry uh, house for returning citizens from prison. And when Bud reached out to her, she uh, reached out to find Bill McVeigh through his Catholic parish. And she put them together. She set up a meeting. She drove Bud out to Bill's house. What, what, what was that meeting like? I mean, if you, I mean, if you could have been a fly on the uh, wall there, I mean, what, I mean, you, you, the, the emotion that must have mm -hmm. been a part of that had to, had to just be off the charts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what, what was that like well, it, when they sat down together yeah. for the first time? It started out with them both being so nervous. You know, there was so much at stake there. They had never met. They didn't know what the other would be like or how it would go. Um, and just to be clear about this, this was dur this was while... Tim was on trial. He had been convicted correct? already at trial. He had been convicted and was awaiting and it, sentencing. Yeah, no, he had been sentenced to death. So he had been sentenced but was awaiting execution. I see. So this is at a time when you have a father who's lost a child reaching out to a father who was about to lose a child. And so mm. Bud went there with a great deal of trepidation, not afraid to meet Bill so much as, you know, just not knowing how he'd feel going to the house where Timothy had grown up as a boy. I mean, that was the house he grew up in. He would have crossed that threshold a thousand times. And Bill was nervous because he's a very shy man to begin with. He's never lived anywhere outside of this five-mile radius of Pendleton and Lockport, New York, outside of Buffalo, except for his two years of service in the Army. And so he's well-known and well-loved in his town, Bill McVeigh, the father. but you know, it's, it's not so easy for him to meet or speak to strangers, especially as the father of the nation's worst domestic mass murderer in history. So he was nervous. And so when Bill and Bud first met at the, on the doorstep, the first thing Bill said to Bud is, you know, I'm shy. I don't talk very much. And Bud kind of laughed in his Oklahoma twang said, well, I talk too much, so we'll be fine, <laughs> which is really true because <laughs> I write in the book that, that Bud can start a story and kind of meander like a road in the a dirt road in an Oklahoma prairie. Just, you know, um, so they, they walked together in, in Bill's backyard garden. Bill's an avid gardener. And when I say garden, I mean the size of a hockey ring. Um, and he grows corn and potatoes and lettuce and beans and peas, and he gives it all away to people who need it. He gives it to his neighbors and his friends and, and to people who have their grandchildren staying with them because the parents are, you know, in jail or felt by the opioid crisis. And so they walked, Bud, Bud said, can I see your garden? I heard you have a beautiful garden. And it was his way of kind of breaking the ice. And out there in the back, it was Bill who really opened up first in honesty and said, you know, Bud, can you cry? And I've, I, I have so much to cry about. I've tried to cry. I just can't. And Bud said back to him, yes, Bill, I can. I can cry. And they went back inside and sat at Bill's kitchen table for hours and found out all these things they had in common. These two men that should be enemies. They were both Irish Catholic families, grew up on farms, went to Catholic schools all the way through, 
never went to college, both working men, had three kids each. I mean, they're almost born around exactly the same time. Both men just turned 80 this year. And they found that common ground of, of fathers. And it was in the course of that that Bill finally was able to cry. And it was just such mm. a healing thing for both of them. And Bud said he cried then all the way back in the car, back to, you know, the halfway house with uh, Sister Roz, because he said he never felt closer to God than in that moment. Was this a, a meeting that they met once and kind of put this behind him, so to speak, or do they have a continuing relationship even today? Oh, no, it's an ongoing relationship. Um, when Bud uh, goes back, you know, in that area to speak or something, he will stop in to see Bill. When Tim's execution was looming and the date was getting closer, Bud was calling him just about every week to see how Bill was doing, how he's holding up. When there was a plane crash uh, near where Bill lived that killed a bunch of people, Bud called him and just to make sure he was okay. Hmm. How do they each react to the trial and execution of, of oh, Timothy McVeigh? Um, but Bud didn't really want to go too much uh, of the trial, and so he didn't. You know, he he was really focused on trying to say in as many ways, in as many places as he can, that the killing another man's child was not going to heal him, was not going to bring back Julie Marie Welch, was not going to do anything but take a caged man out of his cage and, and snuff out his life. And, and that could not possibly heal Bud's broken heart over the loss of his daughter. For Bill, I think the trial was absolutely excruciating because, you know, Bill had uh, was absolutely stunned at what his son had done, was so apologetic to the victims and everyone who suffered from the bombing. Um, and had cooperated with the FBI during the entire investigation, but you know, but never disavowed Tim as his son. And he said, "I, I will never understand what he did, um, but he is my son, and I will always love him, and I don't want him to die." And so it was very hard for him to be in public, surrounded by, you know, so much uh, press attention from all over the world, surrounded by so many people that had been so wounded by what his son had done. And, and yet to, to try to speak for his son out of love. You know, Gene, one of the most striking things that I read in the book was how you describe Bud Welch, who became this really passionate opponent of the death penalty. In my view, sort of, I think just the opposite of what I, what I think most people would think. Um, and he, you know, you re- you recount a number of places where he spoke out really forcefully against the death penalty for Tim. Uh, why do you think he became such an outspoken opponent, such a passionate opponent of the death you penalty? You know, I think it started at first with realizing the truth of what his gas station customers were saying to him because he was drinking too much, he was smoking way too much, and his customer, you know, he was just filled with rage and hate and his customers at the station were saying, but you're killing yourself. And he'd say back to them, you know, the sooner I die, that's okay. You know, sooner I die, the sooner I'll see my daughter, Julie in heaven. But he started realizing the truth of that, I think. And then he started looking into, well, why had Timothy McVeigh done this? And it was all about retaliation and revenge. It's what he discovered. 
The date that Timothy McVeigh chose to do this horrific act, April 19, 1995, was the two-year anniversary of this conflagration during an FBI ATF standoff in Waco, Texas, with a cult called the Branch Davidians, led by this charismatic leader named David Koresh, who was wanted on weapons violations. And after a 51-day standoff, the FBI the ATF decided they'd had enough of the siege and they lobbed tear gas into the compound. It caught fire and 76 people were killed, including a lot of women and children. And so Timothy McVeigh took that as his cue that there needed to be some retaliation and revenge against the federal government to do that. And so he scouted out a lot of different federal buildings before he picked the one in Oklahoma City to set off his bomb. And so when Bud looked at that and thought, well, if that's his reason, revenge, I mean, what is the death penalty except retaliation and revenge? And where will it end? You know, this this tit for tat bloodshed has to stop somewhere. It's going to stop with me. Hmm. Tell, tell you one of the things just on on that point. Uh, I think for for each of the the dads here, how how big an impact did their Christian faith have on say on on Bud Welch's desire to forgive and and just on their attempt at reconciliation. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I, it, I think it had a huge part of it. I mean, it's it's built into these words that they would pray every Sunday at Mass. I mean, every time I've gone to visit Bill McVeigh, it's been over a weekend, and we always go to church together, to his Catholic church, Good Shepherd, in Lockport. And you say these words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's That's the call of Christ to forgive. And these men would have grown up memorizing that scripture from the gospels where Peter says to Jesus, you know, how many times do I have to forgive this brother of mine? Right. I mean, is seven times enough. And then I can say, I'm done. I'm through with you. We're finished. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Um, and they would know the story in John chapter eight, where, you know, a woman's caught in the act of adultery and she's brought for Jesus at the temple and the people with the stones in their hands are surrounding her and saying, you know, the law of Moses said this woman should be executed. What do you say? And Christ said, but he's without sin, with, you know, among you cast the first stone. In other words, not that she doesn't deserve to die, but that we don't deserve to kill her. So I, I think it had everything to do with, you know, why Bud had this change of heart from, from the hate to the impetus to, uh, Forgiveness and reconciliation. Are Are you aware of other people who've approached uh, Bill McVeigh through this? Like, is Bud the only one you know of that offered forgiveness? Uh, how does this stand out compared to some of the other families? The Bud victims? is the only one who uh, has been invited to Bill's home. Bud is the only one he stayed in touch with. I believe there was one other family member that had wanted to meet with Bill, and it was more about. There was this conspiracy theory floated that maybe there were other people involved or something. And I think that it was kind of more than wanting to know if he knew anything about that. And of course he didn't. He knew absolutely nothing of his son's actions during that time. So so Bud is unique in this in this friendship and this reconciliation. 
That's really that's I, that's very interesting that he's the only one that we know of who reached out to Bill Although McVeigh. Although it's interesting, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma all. City, and I'm planning to go back there for this 25th anniversary. I get to speak at my school and a church, and I'm so thrilled to, you know, do that just when the book is coming out because my heart really is going to be in Oklahoma City that day. And it's so interesting. This veteran journalist from there, Linda Cavanaugh, had called me and said that she's interviewing all these people for a kind of a retrospective. And they're all these victims, family members are expressing so much sympathy and love for Bill McVeigh. You know, Timothy McVeigh's mother is dead. She died years ago. So it's really just Bill, you know, as a parent who's left. And, and I don't think he even realizes, you know, that there isn't any hate for him there. Mm. But I invited, invited mm. Bill once to go with me to Oklahoma City, and he shook his head, absolutely not. And he said, I don't have a right to go there. Wow, that's quite a, that's wow. quite a, quite a statement. Um, now, Jean, you described you know, your, your own loss with your sister. Um, how, given the tragedy you've experienced, how has the story of, of Bill McVeigh and Bud Welch's friendship and reconciliation, how's that impacted you personally? Uh, Just as kind of, as you, as you've processed your own grief and reconciliation uh, over the years. It has been so instructive when you think about everything that divides us, right? People talk so much now about what a divided nation we've become, you know, politically, culturally, economically, geographically, you name it, right? And yet these two men who should have been so divided by this tragedy teach me that if you sit down with someone, if you put aside your fears, if you reach out and you sit down with someone and talk with them, you find all this common ground. You discover all these things that connect you, that bind you. I think they are such a shining light for all of us in that regard. What would you say to families who have lost sons or daughters to senseless violence like you have and the Welches have experienced and maybe are kind of on the other side of this and haven't been able to quite process it yet? What in encouragement or just words would you share with them based on where you're at in your life right now and really well, what you've experienced? First of all, I would say to them that my heart goes out to you and your loss. I mean, no one can ever say to another, oh, I understand how you feel because I don't. I cannot imagine losing a child, especially, you know, Bud lost his only daughter and his baby. She was his youngest child. And Bill lost his only son. And, and I, I can't imagine, you know, anyone else's loss. But I can say that what I've learned from Bud and Bill and what I've learned from my own journey with my sister is that, that love never dies and that they are with God. They are in the arms of God, safe, and that their spirit lives on in every single thing that we do in their name and their memory to honor them and this gift of life that they no longer get to enjoy, but we do. I mean, Nancy, when Nancy was murdered, that was the last wasted breath I took. I thought, I have no time to be afraid, to lack courage, to not do, you know, what I think God is calling me to do. And I, I would just say that, you know, everyone goes on their own timeline of healing and discovery on this journey. But I would just encourage them that that there is this wonderful thing that awaits when you 
find a way to live your life in a way that honors and remembers them every day. So, Gene, if I could follow up on that, this on Sean's question just briefly, I think our listeners would be very interested to hear a little bit more about your story of how you connected with your sister's killer and, and experienced forgiveness and reconciliation with that person. How did, yeah, how did all well, that come you know, about? The, the killer wasn't arrested in my sister's murder for six months. And when he was arrested, it was the biggest shock in the world. He was a 16-year-old boy who lived only a few blocks from them. He went to the big public high school in Winnetka, Illinois, where I live now. And my younger son, Stephen, is 16 years old. And he's at a student at Nutria High School, that same high school. And my sister Nancy graduated from that same high school. And so it was such a shock that this skinny 16-year-old boy could have picked up a 357 Magnum revolver and shot them to death. And so when he was convicted of the crime, he got the mandatory sentence that you got at the time in Illinois, and that's life in prison without the possibility of parole, meaning you go into prison and you die there. Wow. And for a 16-year-old the age of my son. And at first, wow. I was fine with that. I thought, you know what? I'm leaving you to God. Right? I'm going to forgive you in my own mind and heart. I didn't reach out to him at all to tell him I'd forgiven him because I figured you know, he hadn't asked for it and he didn't deserve it. And I was just going to go forward in my life honoring Nancy and Richard and their baby and, and trying to do all the good that I could do in their memory. But then I was really convicted to reach out and reconcile with him. And, and I did that because I, I was given a book by this wonderful Southern Baptist author, Pastor Randall O'Brien, that said that it's the obligation of every Christian man and woman or woman to try to reconcile with those who wronged them. And when I talked with Randall about that, to just say, what would that even look like, you know, with this remorseless killer? He said to me, it would look like Jesus on the cross. And I started crying when he said that because I had, I knew what that meant, right? Our Lord was on the cross dying and he's was praying for the people who were killing him. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so I was so convicted because I'd never once prayed for this 16-year-old who killed my family members. I called myself a Christian, but never, ever prayed for him. And so I needed to do that. I started praying for him. I wrote to him. And I said, I forgave you a long time ago. never told you. And that was wrong. And I'm sorry. And I waited all this time for you to apologize to me. I'm going to go first. I'm sorry, and I'll come see you if you want me to, and we'll talk. And he wrote back right away, 15-page letter, front and back, expressing great remorse for what oh, he did. Wow. Confessing to the crime for the first time, saying he wished he could take their place in the grave if they could come out. He was so sorry. And I did go see him, and it's been just so incredibly healing for both of us, I think. So it'd be, it'd be quite an understatement to say that he was receptive to your oh, offer I mean, he, of forgiveness. He would have reached out to me long ago, but he was worried that getting a letter with his name in the top hand left left hand corner an envelope would be traumatic for me. And it wasn't until I expressed my willingness to to speak with him that he immediately wrote back to me. He'd be in his mid forties now. My sister was killed. 30 years ago, this April 7th, it was the night before Palm Sunday. And so every Lent of where we go through this journey from, you know, the horror of, of Good Friday into the 
the joy of the resurrection of, of Easter. Um, it's it's such a uh, it's such a journey. You have personally experienced uh, this with your sister evil in a pretty powerful way. And then writing this story and researching this, obviously seeing it kind of face to face, so to speak. And yet you still believe. Why do you still believe? And what would your response be to people who look at the world and say, in this level of evil, I just can't believe oh, there's a and good yet God. God loves us so much. And when my sister was murdered, my first reaction was, oh, you know, I understand free will. I understand that people are not puppets, that we are given this choice to do good or evil. And I wondered just in my aching heart, you know, God, where were you? Nancy was a Christian. She would have been praying from the minute she walked through that door and saw that gun pointed at her. But it was a week later that the police released to us a detail from the crime scene they hadn't told us. And that is before Nancy died. She dragged herself over to where her husband's body lay on that basement floor where he was already dead. And in her dying moments, she dipped her finger in her own blood and she drew next to him the shape of a heart and the letter U, love you. And when I heard that, I started crying because I thought, what but the presence of a loving and benevolent God could possibly explain how she would have the serenity, the love, the capacity to do something like that. And that taught me that love has the last word in our lives, not evil. Of course, the killing of 168 people in Oklahoma City in one callous bombing and three unborn children. Three of the women who were killed in the bombing were pregnant with babies they had already named. So in my mind, 171 people were killed that day. But God was there. God was there with each of them. God was present with all of the, the loved ones wanting to bind up those wounds and to redeem their suffering and to express the love and forgiveness that God has for us and for the whole world. Wow, I think that's so powerful, Jean. I mean, Sean and I are about to lose it here <laughs> just, just listening to that. Uh, and I think you, you've answered the question that you raise in the epilogue uh, of your book, yeah. which is how do we respond? How do we respond to evil? I mean, that's you just answered that really eloquently. Um, this is what a what a powerful story. Uh, you know, I would encourage our listeners to be be aware of the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing that'll be coming up in April of 2020, and to especially look for the book uh, Gene Bishop entitled "Grace from the Rubble," uh, subtitled Two Fathers Road to Reconciliation After the Oklahoma City Bombing." Gene, you have you have done a great work here. This is just is such a compelling story, and we are so grateful for you to come on with us. Not only to talk about the the McVeigh and Welch families, but about your own experience and how you know how their story impacted you uh, so powerfully. So this has just been a rich time. Thank you so much for coming on with us, and uh, all the best as you go back to Oklahoma City. Uh, to participate in this 25th anniversary. Well, thank you so much. What a pleasure. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Jean Bishop, and her book, Grace from the Rubble, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola 
Fordham.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and be sure to share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.